You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. And so today we're going to be talking about persevering through opposition. And uh, here in Nehemiah chapter 4, we get a very real glimpse of what that opposition uh, looks like, how it operates. So let's begin. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 6 this morning. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes upon it, he will break down their stone wall. Notice verse 4, Nehemiah's testimony. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. And give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today, for the opportunity to worship you uh, this morning through singing and, and praying and the reading of your word. And I pray now that we would continue worshiping you uh, by being attentive to your word, what it might teach us today about you and about ourselves and about our, our Savior, Jesus, that we might respond in faithfulness and obedience, Lord. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. And your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this should be no surprise to us uh, as God is doing a great work in and through his people here in Nehemiah that opposition arises. And spiritual battles begin to take place. This is the reality of the world we live. Uh, It's a fallen world. A world that is deeply affected by sin and by the, the fall. A world bent against God and His rule over uh, the world. The Scripture clearly teaches the reality of, of spiritual warfare in the life of those who follow after God. The Apostle Peter warns us that we have a real enemy. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul cautions us against being drawn into the wrong battle by decoys. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, and also Ephesians 6, 10, uh, call us to be aware of these 
this battle and of the strategies. Uh, it says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so as we come to Nehemiah here, chapter 4 through 6, it's largely going to be about this opposition or this spiritual warfare that takes place. Listen to uh, J.I. Packer who writes this. The real theme of Nehemiah chapter 4 through 6 is spiritual warfare and Nehemiah's real opponent lurking behind the human opponents, critics and grumblers who occupied his attention directly, it was Satan whose name means adversary and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people. And God's praise. And that's exactly what's happening here. He goes on to say, when God initiates something for His praise, Satan is always there trying to keep pace with Him, planning ways of spoiling and frustrating the divine project. It is very true. So we should be aware of these things and be prepared for these things. And one of the ways we can be prepared is by recognizing the work of our our enemy, to recognize his tactics and his work. And here in Nehemiah chapter 4, we get a, a very vivid glimpse of some of his schemes and tactics and how we should respond to that. I want us to walk through the text and look at some of his tactics first. There are at least six of them uh, here uh, in the text. First, notice there's ridicule. Ridicule, again, verses 1, uh, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And then about that time, verse 3, his little sidekick, Tobiah, there says, Yes, what, what they are building, if a fox goes on, upon it, he will break down their stone wall. This is just ridicule. They're just sort of poking fun and, and at the... Uh, Nehemiah and his people. What are those feeble Jews doing? He's questioning their strength. They're, they're not able to do this. Uh, he says, well, they restore the wall. He's questioning their competence to do this task. You don't have any idea what you're doing. Uh, will they offer sacrifices? Are you, really, are you guys really trusting in prayer to help you get through this battle? Uh, will they finish in a day? He's questioning their commitment, their resolve to the project. Are they going to revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish? He's, he's questioning the whole validity and feasibility of the project. And then in just meanness, uh, if a fox goes on the wall, the wall's going to fall down. Which is not true, by the way, because uh, archaeologists have uncovered that those walls were some nine feet thick. One author called ridicule the language of the devil. Uh, paper bullets of the brain. And though you think, well, those are just comments, they're just uh, words, they shouldn't affect anybody, uh, but how, how many people have stood bravely when they were shot at only to uh, collapse quickly when they were laughed at? And so beware of this tactic. This, this isn't the first or last time this has been used. I, I, I remind you of several stories in the Bible. Um, uh, Goliath taunting David. Do you remember that story? 1 Samuel 17. I remind you that they mocked Jesus who was on the cross. Luke chapter 22. 
Uh, I, I think about Paul, who was sharing the gospel with uh, the governor Festus in Acts 26, who the governor said to him, Paul, you are out of your mind. When the enemy laughs at, God's, at, at what God's people are doing, it's usually a sign of God's work. And, and I would also remind you, don't be dismayed by this, because as the enemy rages on the earth, Psalm 2 verse 4 says that he who sits in the heaven laughs. He's not affected. Another common tactic of Satan is uh, intimidation, and we would add confusion. Notice verses 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that, they, that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So we already mentioned Samballot. Samballot was the leader of the Samaritans to the north. Tobiah was the leader of the Ammonites to the east. Uh, Geshem and uh, Arabs to the south and the Ashadites to the west. And so in other words, all four of these, these nations, these people around uh, Jerusalem, were joining together to plot and to threaten uh, God's people and their work. They're like a, a group of thugs. They're trying to intimidate and cause uh, confusion. And again, it's reminiscent of Psalm chapter 2, if you haven't read it, where it says the nations conspire against God. Intimidation is a tactic of, of Satan, and it's happening all over the world. In, in, in the past few years, there's been a bit of a, a spiritual awakening, if you will, or at least work of God going on in the country of Iran, where many, uh, several people are becoming believers in Christ and, and uh, following Christ. There's a growing Christian movement there. But I tell you that the government is using every means possible to uh, intimidate Christians and to make people who are thinking about becoming Christians uh, think very hard about that decision because they are harassing them. There is uh, a joblessness that is uh, associated with their faith in Christ. There are financial difficulties. It's an old tactic, but it's one that, that often is effective by the enemy. Even in our own country, and I think you know this, that the culture is increasingly turning against Christianity here. More and, and more so, uh, turning against Christ, turning against His Word, and, and using things as, as, as belittling and bullying Christians. So, uh, you think about r religious schools and organizations who are being punished because of their beliefs about marriage or about biological sex. There, there's a clear message that is being sent. Either you get on board with what's going on in society around us and the views of society, or prepare to be marginalized and punished. So such threats happened in Nehemiah's day. There's intimidation uh, going on. Though, though it was not successful, it almost certainly played a, a factor in uh, fatigue and discouragement that set in among the people. Notice verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. How effective these can be. I think about the story of the Israelites who were about to enter the promised land for the first time. You remember that story? And they sent in the 12 spies to the land. 
and uh, they came back and with a negative report, at least 10 out of the 12. And Numbers 13, they said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And later on, it was said in chapter 32, verse 9 of Numbers, that they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel. They discouraged them. And as a result of that, it led to disobedience and 40 more years of wandering in the wilderness. I think about my own life, how fatigue and discouragement are, are used so often very effectively against me. I know how my perspective is often skewed by fatigue or by discouragement. How it causes me to take my eyes off the Lord and His Word and put them on myself or put them on my circumstances. How quickly it, that discouragement can affect my perspective about life, about all kinds of things. And so we need to be aware of this. This is something that Satan will use against us to keep us from the Lord. Then finally notice the fear that crept up in their hearts. Verse 14, And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. And so you can imagine during this time, there's all these rumors going around about all these nations that are conspiring and all what's bad's going to happen and how these battles are going to come. And it was causing great fear among the people. I would remind you that, that fear and faith cannot live together very long in the heart, in the same heart. Jesus encouraged the disciples in Matthew 8, uh, 26. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And yet it's fear that Satan often uses to keep us from obeying the Lord. Fear that keeps us from from putting our eyes on, on the Lord, the greatness of the glory of God. It's fear that, that keeps us consumed with our circumstances and the obstacles and all the reasons why we can't and we shouldn't and we might not and this might happen and so forth. It may be that Satan's goal in all of these tactics is somewhat of fear and even more so to, to leave us feeling weak to leave us feeling isolated from one another, distant from our God. He wants us to take our eyes off God. And, and I tell you, there's a, lots of ways that he, he does this, he, whether it's through hurt feelings or anger or pride or fear, whether it's directed at you personally or directed at the church, whether it's brought about through jealousy or gossip or divisiveness. The goal is always the same. The goal is to leave you feeling weak and alone and isolated from one another and isolated from God. I think this may be why Scripture never instructs us to fight against Satan. There are, there are no verses that call us to speak to our enemy or to engage him in a fight. Why? Because to do so is to play right into his hands. That's exactly what he wants you to do. He wants your focus to be on him, your circumstances, and not on the Lord. His desire is to lure us away from God, to lure us away from one another, and therefore, we must resist Him. Because the moment that we turn our eyes from God, we lose the battle. Here's the truth. We can never gain spiritual victories over sin in our own strength. It must be from the Lord. 
This is where I think Nehemiah's response is so much more important than these tactics, but also so much more helpful to us. Uh, being aware of these tactics is one thing, but notice how Nehemiah responds to these. First of all, he calls us to focus on God. Focus on God. He turns immediately to God in prayer, doesn't he? We don't even get like a phrase that said, Nehemiah prayed. I mean, he just goes into prayer. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we're despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are not captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is not a, a vindictive kind of prayer. Notice Nehemiah's focus is about God. They've provoked you, God, in what they're doing. And he models for us essentially the same thing that we read repeatedly in the New Testament. Again, uh, some common passages, Ephesians 6:10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. Resist him. Uh, 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful for you. Uh, for your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Notice, resist him. Firm in your faith. So what do you do when you're encountering temptation? What do you do when you're feeling the heat of life and you're feeling the heat of opposition that's trying to keep you from following God and being obedient to God? What do you do? You turn your focus on God. You go to him. Notice, as the attacks come again in verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah responds the same way. Verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You see, by turning to God in prayer, we turn our attention to God and His work in our lives. We humble ourselves before Him and draw on His strength. We actually position ourselves in a place of safety, for He is our keeper and our shade. Proverbs 18.10 teaches the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Or, or Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn, the power of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Amen. That's our God. A mighty fortress is our God. And so we focus on Him and we run to Him. In fact, this story here of Nehemiah, we've already mentioned, is a testimony about the sufficiency of God. It's about how God is sufficient for all of these things. This God, as Nehemiah points out, is, is unique. Verses 4 and verse 9, He is in a relationship with His people so that they can call on Him in prayer. 
Because their God is attentive to the righteous, verse 4, they, they prays, He turns the insults of the enemy back on their own heads. This God, verse 14, is powerful. He's a great God. He's able to do what is humanly impossible. Verse 15, He frustrates the plans of the, the enemies. Verse 20, He is an unfailing God who fights for His own people. This is the great God that we serve, Christian. This is the one that you need to run to in spiritual opposition. Church, this is the one we need to cling to. Keep your focus on Him. That's the first thing. When, when the opposition comes, just r- remind yourself, my fight, the best way I can fight is to run to my Heavenly Father. The second thing Nehemiah did was to continue the work. After praying, verse 6 says, so we built the wall. I love that. We built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So we we find ourselves facing opposition, and we're, we're engaged in some spiritual battle. It is important that we not become distracted and be kept from the work. And so Nehemiah remembered his mission and he stuck to his work. He's not drawn into a personal battle. He, is, he refuses the idea that this is somehow about him. He's not drawn into his own ego and his own pride. And he's not suddenly forgetting who is God and thinking that he himself is God. And this is about him or uh, this is about his own strength. No, this is about God's mission, God's glory. He focuses on God And he puts his hand to the work that God has given him. Now, this is hard to do, isn't it? It's a hard part to do. It's a real battle that takes place right in these moments. I I love the story about a farmer who was a Quaker, and he was having trouble with his mule. He was trying to plow and his field and the mule was being unusually stubborn and he just wouldn't move. So the Quaker decided to talk to him, uh, his mule, reasonably. He said to the mule, mule, you know that I am a Quaker. You know that I can't cuss you or whip you or beat you. But uh, what you don't know is that I can sell you to my neighbor down the road and he's not a Quaker and he can beat the living daylights out of you. (laughs) I think to myself, yes, that's how how I feel. But God has called us to be faithful, hasn't He? Obedient. And so when we face opposition, the temptation is to fix our attention on ourselves in pity or, or to fix attention on ourselves and justify ourselves or proving ourselves, defending ourselves. The other temptation, the other side of the ditch, is becoming obsessed with our enemies, our enemy himself and trying to engage him in some kind of a, a fight using words and, and scorn and, and so forth. But instead, what, what needs to happen is our ears ringing with the word of God and, and our eyes fixed on Jesus and our goal and, and mission is on his glory and then our hands need to be about his work that he's given us. It may be the most important lesson of this passage that opposition must not stop the work of the Lord. Nehemiah and the people of God did not, uh, they didn't shut down the project because there were enemies. They, uh, it says, strapped on a sword and they kept working. Now, this was the right opposition to press forward 
with the mission of God. So when you are feeling attacked, the best response, listen, the best response is to continue to obey the Lord. Continue doing what God has called you to do. Don't forsake the habits that He's placed in your life, the work that He's called you to, the living faithfully as a Christian. Don't sit down. Keep working. Continue in that. This work and uh, His focus on the Lord kind of prepares the way for this third response, which I think is just as important. And that is, uh, for Nehemiah, it, it was to encourage others. And this is where, as a church family, we are all drawn into this in one another's lives. And why that the reason that you're here today is not because this is about your individual, pers- you know, private kind of walk with the Lord, but the fact that you are joining together with a church body is so critical and so important, and it's illustrated right here in our text. When the threat level went from yellow to orange, Nehemiah responds with boldness, verse 14. He says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. Notice that. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Can I tell you that's exactly what we are called to do with one another? We're to fight for one another? One of the greatest challenges Nehemiah is facing here in rebuilding the wall was to develop a strategy so that they could stand together in case of attack. We get a glimpse of it, verse 19. He says, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. Nehemiah recognized this was a dangerous place to to be when the enemy attacks because this is exactly what he wants to do. Satan wants to isolate and divide. It's one of his chief goals. How does Nehemiah respond? He appoints a man to stay at his side so that if there was an attack, he could sound an alarm. Verse 20, and the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. God never intended for us as Christians to face our enemy alone. We need one another, church. You need the people sitting around you. You need the people in your Sunday school class. You you need these. There is support and strength and unity and encouragement. This is why so much emphasis is on this in the New Testament, how Jesus prayed for unity among us. John 17, why Paul prayed, uh, commanded us to make every effort to preserve the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, he said. We need one another. I find it so odd when speaking to people often who have dropped out of church or something And they will say something like, well, you know, I've got this problem and i got that issue and this thing came up. And I'm thinking to myself, friend, church should have been the very last place you should have ever dropped out of. In fact, you should never drop out of of church because that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. He wants to isolate you. He wants to pull you away from the strength of the people of God, not hearing encouragement, not not receiving instruction, not, not being a part of the fellowship where there is strength, not hearing about the greatness of God, not being reminded about these truths of how we're to focus on Him, that He is worthy of everything that we could ever go through. Go through. 
We are all more vulnerable when we try to live the Christian life in isolation. When we're out of harmony, out of fellowship with other Christians, we are far more vulnerable to Satan's attacks. This seemed to be Paul's main point, one of his main points in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's not talking about building there. He's talking about people. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the together of that passage. So that later on when Paul says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord, he's not saying you as an individual be strong. He is saying you as the church be strong in the Lord. You must stand together. Put on the full armor of God as a church. This means we're looking out for one another, doesn't it? It means that we're watching each other's lives. We're looking to see, is so-and-so discouraged in their walk? Oh, is so-and-so, they've missed a few weeks of church. I should call and check on them. I haven't seen them. The people sitting around me in the pew, you know, you all kind of sit in the same spots weekly. And so pay attention. I haven't seen so-and-so. And in a while, I wonder what's going on with them. I wonder if they've grown discouraged. I wonder if there's a battle that they need to know that I'm standing with them. This is the, 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 the attitude we're to have. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Coming together, encouraging one another. It matters not just to your own spiritual well-being, but the spiritual growth and protection of all the people that you see around you. Amen? As the chapter concludes, we see a final response from Nehemiah. That is that he kept watch and, and to keep watch and to be prepared. To be prepared. Verse 21, so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time that every man and his servant passed the night within Jerusalem that they, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes and kept his weapon at his right hand. That is, uh, that's quite a testimony, isn't it? And quite a posture uh, uh, to take. But remember Paul's words again, Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places church we have a formidable enemy we sang in that hymn that we opened up on earth is not as equal and therefore we take up the 
armor of God and we continue with our mission, we stand ready, we stand prepared, we know this is a reality, we, we are watching for this. First Peter 5.8, sober-minded and watchful, he says, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is how we train and prepare so that we're not distracted from the mission. We live with readiness, we live with watchfulness, both of our own souls and the souls of the people around us. And as we do so, God's work not only gets done, but as we've been saying all, of, all along, God works on us, doesn't He? He works on us. Here's what's amazing about all of this to me. The same obstacles and challenges that our enemy uses to tempt us are the same ones that our God will use to test and purify us. The difference is, is not in the circumstances. The difference is in our responses. And it's so important for us to understand. And, and, and the responses of whether we give in to sin in the battle, whether we, we're serving the purposes of our enemy, or whether we resist sin by the power of God at work in us, and, and, and serve God per, God's purposes. And God's purposes for us is to grow us in godliness and Christ-likeness. And He uses all kinds of things, even spiritual warfare, to bring about this in your life. This is why, again, it's never appropriate to claim that spiritual opposition, that spiritual warfare has kept us from living faithfully and obedient lives. It's never appropriate to claim that. Kept us from the mission that Christ has given us uh, of making disciples and building His kingdom. No, because here's the truth. It's always our lack of obedience and faithfulness that keeps us from doing that. Spiritual warfare always comes down to this. Will we do what God says? And it doesn't really matter whether it's your own flesh that's pulling you away or some kind of opposing spiritual force. It doesn't matter. The same response is true. Will we choose to focus on the glory of God or will we become distracted by these other things, the allure of other things? Will we continue in the mission that God has given us or sit on the sidelines of fear? Will we join together and guard the precious fellowship that God has entrusted to us or will we endanger that fellowship by succumbing to our own pride and selfishness and thinking only about ourselves? Will we live watchfully and prepared knowing that these things are very much a reality for all of us or will we live lackadaisical and complacent and think this is all about us? Will we turn from our sinfulness and trust God? Because only then will we be victorious, church. Only then only then will we discover something that's absolutely remarkable and wonderful. That is the amazing reality. I know that you, you probably know this. Maybe you haven't been thinking about this. But that the war has already been fought and won by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's already over. Colossians 2, 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ. 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, the debt of our sin that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How did he set it aside? He nailed it to the cross. And then notice, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, spiritual rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Jesus. Christ has already won. He has defeated our enemy once and for all. And church, His victory is our victory. But only as we are continuing to turn from our sins and trusting and obeying Him. So the question today is, have you? And are you? The invitation this morning is perhaps that. Maybe you've never trusted to begin with in Christ as your Savior and Lord. Will you? It is your only hope for victory. Many of you have. And in that decision, you've been called to make many other decisions demonstrating your faith in Christ. And so I would ask you today, are you being faithful in those things? Are you living a life of faithfulness and obedience right now? Or have you been sidetracked by all the other circumstances and spiritual warfare and problems and challenges and whatever else you have in your life right now? Are you being faithful to follow Him? God help us to do so. Amen. Father, thank you. Uh, for your word today, for this old, old story uh, that still has, still speaks incredible truth. Lord, in, in a world where uh, the problems may look a little bit different, uh, the dangers are still the same, the implications still the same. But there is an enemy, and, and even our own selves, our own sinful selves that, that desire to, to put our focus on other things. Help us to put our focus on you and on your son, Jesus Christ. And help us to be faithful, to continue in the work. And as we're doing so, help us to encourage one another to be faithful in this. Lord, as we're about to sing and worship, may this be our prayer that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.